Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. It seems that everyone, young or old, has a smartphone these days. But why are the brightest minds in Silicon Valley now stopping their children from using screens? Have they realised something? And are we addicted to smartphones? Also on this podcast, Tory MEPs recently voted in support of Viktor Orban's government in the European Parliament. So are British Tories now flirting with the far right? And if they are, could it be because the Tories have no attractive policies? Should we be returning to One Nation Toryism? First up, it's time for a wake-up call. We're all becoming hopelessly addicted to smartphones. But what's more, Jenny McCartney finds that there's a growing movement in Silicon Valley against smart technology. She writes about this in this week's cover piece and joins me now. I'm also joined by Jamie Bartlett, author and tech blogger. Jenny, you start in your piece looking at smartphone addiction and saying you're concerned about your children's use of smartphones. Can you just tell us a bit more about that to start with? Well, I'm, I'm not so desperately concerned about my children's use of smartphones because they don't, as I say at the end of the piece, they don't actually have them. My, my son has a Nokia brick that doesn't do very much and my daughter doesn't have one yet. But I think in general, parents are very concerned, particularly when their children hit the teenage years. Because having a portable computer, a portable access to the internet, makes teenagers in particular very vulnerable to the judgment of their peers. And I think people use the internet for two things, for affirmation and for information. And of course, some of us use it for a blend of both those things, but teenagers are more likely to use it for affirmation. And if positive remarks don't come in return for things that they're posting, it can, you know, lead to sort of depression. Jamie, you've obviously written a lot about tech. Do you think we're all addicted to our smartphones? (laughs) (laughs) I think to a certain degree, many of us are. And not just addicted, but I think it's definitely doing something to the nation's concentration level. You know, the inability for us as grown-ups, and many of us are just as bad as the kids, to be perfectly honest, are less and less able to focus for long periods of time. We feel the draw of the bleep and the ping. And I think it's very important that you inculcate the habit early among young people of being able to concentrate and focus and and, and actually in the piece talk about the sort of values of boredom of not always being surrounded by flashing lights and amazing new information. It's really important for creativity and and, and all the rest. So it's it's definitely a big problem. Well, Jenny, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because, I mean, adults are just as addicted to smart technology as children. Is is there anything that we can do about that, do you think? Yes, I think there is. I I think that the texture of adult addiction is sometimes slightly different in that we are to a greater extent compelled to use the internet practically. You know, if you want to get a flight, you have to check in and, and print out your boarding pass or, you know, you do your bills or your bank account stuff online. So we're kind of embroiled in it anyway. And then many of us, I mean, especially journalists or anybody involved in communication or culture or academia has to use it for work. But I think there's also a bit on top of that, which is just that kind of boundary between Yes, you're working. Yes, it's information. Now it's tipped into slightly obsessional. It's compulsive. It's so interesting. I mean, it's it's been such a 
sea change in accessibility to information that actually there comes a point when one would have to be quite strict and just say it has to cut off now. I mean, I find myself at two in the morning googling dog breeds. I don't even have a dog. I don't want a dog. Um, It was just terribly interesting, all their different personalities being described. Now, this information may be of some use to me somewhere down the line, or it probably won't. It was just interesting. And as I say in the piece, I think there's a risk that some of us are going to be interesting ourselves to death. Were you also talking your piece about the tech titans in Silicon Valley, people like Sean Parker and Mark Zuckerberg, who are actually not letting their kids use the very technology which they've created? Jamie, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's obviously partly they, they've been inside the belly of the beast. They understand that the underlying motive for a lot of these companies is essentially a, a sort of a desperate desire to capture your attention. And they they can see the damage that that could do. And I think it's interesting that the sort of wave of, of contrition that you've seen in Silicon Valley over the last couple of years, I think is partly a result of some of the tech titans having small children and thinking, oh my goodness me, what have we done? But I think Jenny's piece there points to a, a, an interesting new strange inequality in society possibly, that it becomes something like a privilege of the elite to go offline, to go off grid, to spend time without your smartphone. Simon Cowell recently said he'd given up his smartphone and it was wonderful. And, and I thought, he hasn't really given it up, though, has he? He's just outsourced all of its functions <laughs> to, its, to he his assistants. other people who are using... Exactly. And I wonder whether we'll actually start to see this become more and more part of a sort of, you know, enlightened lifestyle for the rich and famous mm. while everybody else is still uh, glued on. I mean, do you think, I mean, Jenny and Jamie, do you think you could give up your phone? I mean, right now we're actually recording the podcast using our phones. We've Don't got tell our anyone. Phones here. Yes, um, I think it would be really hard. I, I wouldn't seek to give up the phone because it's part of what I do for work. I think it would become really hard for me to do my work without um, technology. So it's been a great boon and it helps me to find out stuff. It helps me to send stuff. You know, I couldn't give it up. But what I think I do need to do is fence it off. And that's what people need to learn to contain it. It's a bit like being prone to alcoholism and there's a constant free bar. I mean, that's what the internet is for people who like either affirmation or information. So I think we're, we're going to have to learn how to manage this thing. And the, the tech titans have sort of, I think, understood that they've created a beast that perhaps has more power than they first anticipated. And like Jamie says, they're slightly horrified by it. But it is true that social status and tech are changing their relationship. I mean, in the late 90s, it was a status symbol to have the newest mobile phone or, you know, then to have access to the Internet and so on in your home. I think that's shifting around now as the the sort of people who are part of the elite, the social elite, begin to realise that there are potential damaging effects of overuse. And phones have clearly been designed to be quite addictive. Um, Jamie, do you think there's going to be a reaction against that and we're going to see phones designed to be a bit more cumbersome, more difficult to use, or is that just wishful thinking? Well, yeah, it's strange, isn't it, that we might have to do something like that. I, I genuinely believe in the next couple of years, governments will start talking about and trying to work out how to regulate against so-called addictive technology, technology that's designed to be as addictive as possible. It's going to be really hard to know how they'll do that. I mean, they could say... Well, you can't use red notifications because red coloured notifications are shown to be more addictive than green coloured notifications. That would be ludicrous. But I think they may start encouraging the tech firms, for example, to be a little more responsible. Let's say your default settings so notifications don't pop up straight away. 
make sure that you make it as easy as possible for users to understand how much they're spending their lives on there and even advise them to take a break. If you look at gambling, which I think is actually quite a similar industry in some respects, Gambling companies have to give money to research gambling addiction and prevention and they fund charities to work on that. Maybe we can ask the tech companies to do the same. And just finally, can I ask both of you to give me your best bit of advice for trying to stay off your smartphone? Um, Well, I quite frequently lose mine by accident, (laughs) but I might lose it um, on purpose. If you put it onto silent, you'll find that you leave it somewhere and it will take at least half a day before you can find it again. I like to think I'm in a constant battle with my smartphone, which I love and hate simultaneously. And I try to think about sort of working on my levels of concentration and focus like you would with fitness or or cutting down on drinking or smoking or whatever. It's never going to be perfect, but you you try to actually practice not looking at your phone. And one thing you can do as well is set the whole thing onto black and white. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Grayscale, it it's so called. boring. It makes, the, at the very least, people's lives on Instagram don't look as exciting as they pretend them to be. Well, I found actually I deleted Instagram in January and that has become... Because I'm not quite, even on Instagram. <laughs> I'm bad enough on Twitter. <laughs> brilliant. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, Jenny. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Next, in a recent European parliamentary vote, Tory MEPs swam against the current by voting to protect Viktor Orban's far-right government in Hungary from European sanctions. Tory MEPs lost the vote, but Anne Applebaum asks in this week's magazine, why are British Tories flirting with the far-right? I'm joined by Paul Stocker, a senior fellow at the Centre for the Analysis of the Radical Right, and Frank Furedi, a sociologist and author. So, Paul, let's start with you. I mean, the Hungarian government and the Polish government are often dubbed far-right. Do you agree with that label? I think they certainly come as close to that label as any government currently existing in Europe could do. Viktor Orban has publicly claimed he wants to see an illiberal democracy in Hungary and has done many of the things that far-right organisations call for, such as strict controls on migration, state controls on media. So I think you could certainly call the Hungarian government far-right. Poland is perhaps a little bit more complicated than that. and They haven't been in power as long as Orban, who's been there for nearly a decade now. But certainly Hungary, as well as other minority-led governments, such as in Italy, or coalition partners in Italy, such as Matteo Salvini's party, they they can clearly be labelled far-right as well. Frank, do you agree with that labelling? No, no, no. I think we use the word far-right very promiscuously at the moment, and we the language we use is very polarised. I would say that the Hungarian government's politics is right-wing conservative. It's not all that different to the politics of Adenauer or the Gaul in the past. It's got a nationalist Christian strain to it. But if you look at the situation in Hungary, which is often described as authoritarian, it's a singularly relaxed political space. There is total freedom of speech for people to express themselves. There are demonstrations demonstrations in Budapest almost every single week, well, every single week, almost every single day, without the slightest bit of police intimidation. And it seems to me that if Hungary is far right, then it's only a matter of time before anybody who has got some nationalist aspirations are going to be called akin to being Nazis and people are going to use metaphors. It's just like the 1930s. 
They're just like Hitler. And I think there's a real disservice that's being done because essentially what the project is, is to quarantine nations like Hungary, to delegitimate them and to represent them as these augurs of, you know, of authoritarianism. When Orban gave his speech on illiberal democracy, of being an illiberal de- democrat, he actually praised liberalism for, for many of its founding virtues, such as the rule of law, which he signs up to, and uh, such, as, such as the fundamental freedoms. And I think that his expression, illiberal liberal, you know, democracy, is often misunderstood and, and, and kind of recast as some kind of anti-enlightenment, anti-freedom, authoritarian orientation. Paul, what do you make of the Tory MEP's decision recently to vote in support of Orbán's government? Well, I think it's quite clearly unprincipled in the sense I actually don't believe that conservative politicians in the European Parliament, or at least most of them, actually have much ideological affinity with Viktor Orban. But in some ways that makes it worse because they're clearly doing it. And Michael Gove indeed as much as said this in order to get a better Brexit deal. And they know that Viktor Orban and many other people who feel like they have been trampled on by European Union institutions, such as Hungary over migration or others, the Conservative Party feel that they are their closest allies currently in Europe, and therefore they're not prepared to criticise them. But this is deeply troubling, given that the governments in Hungary and Poland and indeed many others in East Central Europe clearly stand for things that the Conservative Party in Britain does not and should not. And yet they are giving the impression that they support them. And if I was Theresa May, I'd be very concerned about the Conservative Party membership and people within their party, even indicating that they support these kinds of people who are really, really far to the right of even one of the most right wing governments Britain's had since Thatcher. Now, how much of this do you think is the fact they are slightly rebelling within the EU? Do you think Britain is sort of allying with these countries because they're seen as other rebels? Yeah, I mean, I think Britain will take whatever support it can get, quite frankly. But I think certainly Viktor Orban has been a big critic of the European Union before many of its core values. Britain knows that it's going to find its friends in places like that and places where they have made similar statements to what the Brexit campaigners were saying, people who are in favour of national sovereignty, criticism of immigration. I mean, this is something that Viktor Orban is likely to be in support of. Interestingly, though, he himself is not an advocate of leaving the European Union for Hungary. So I think, as I say, the Conservative Party will look wherever they can to find people who will help them get the deal they need to help Britain leave the European Union. It's just a shame it has to come from somebody quite as extreme as Viktor Orban's Hungary. Frank, in Anne Applebaum's piece, she, she disputes that the Hungarian government is actually promoting the Christian ideals that you mentioned earlier. I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, I think she has got a very conspiratorial view of the situation because basically her argument amounts to saying that the Hungarian government consists of a bunch of unprincipled hucksters, thieves and corrupt politicians who really should not be taken seriously as political animals. And I, I just think that you have to take a step back and ask the question, are Hungarian people so stupid as to re-elect on you know, several occasions a party of hucksters? Is there no sense of idealism or passion in Hungarian politics and whatever you think of Orban and you don't have to agree with him he is somebody that you know stood up and defied the old communist regime when everybody else was looking at your shoelaces and were scared to take on the old regime. He's one of the few people that's consistently raised the level of political discussions by trying to discuss you know more ideally and, and value related issues and if you read all his speeches, you know, I mean, he may, you know, he may be a liar. I mean, I'm not a psychologist like, like Applebaum who knows his internal thoughts. 
But when you when you look at and read his speeches and 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 and, he, and what he's been saying, he is very much has always been committed to a particular view of the world. And and I think he might not agree with that, but it's a very political and it's underpinned by a very clear normative foundation of what he's trying to do. And just because you might disagree with him, and that's, which is quite legitimate, there is no need for people to then say that all he is is just this kind of a con man in the way to use the language of Applebaum. That really is a very uh, politically illiterate way of, of dealing with an issue and not really engaging with the claims that people make about them. Basically, they're saying, we don't care what they say. What we care about is what's the story behind the story. And that kind of conspiratorial discourse does lead to a highly polarized discussion where it's, in the end of the day, everybody you disagree with is the extreme right. Paul, I mean, the Hungarians, of course, voted for Orban. I mean, do you think it's right for the EU to try to involve itself in Hungarian politics? Hungary is a member of the EU and has been for quite some time now. And when you sign up to be a member of the European Union, you are obliged to follow its core values, such as freedom of the press, improving civil society. I see much evidence that Orban is not in line with those core values. And if you were to just allow any country which it has signed up to be in this block, if you just allowed it to get away with a lot of the things it gets away with, then that would fundamentally undermine what the EU is for. The EU is not anymore just a free trade bloc. It is a rules-based organisation based on the rule of law and a series of core values. And indeed, Britain is finding this out as it leaves. You cannot pick and choose the bits of the EU that you like. You cannot, in the case of Hungary, take millions and millions of euros of structural funding grants but decides you don't really want to abide its laws on other things. Just like Britain can't, I don't know, be a member of the single market, but pick and choose who or whether or not it has freedom of movement. So I think if the EU means anything, it has to uphold the values that its member states hold and what it aspires to. And Hungary quite clearly is not doing that currently, and not just Hungary. I dare say, I I wouldn't deny that they may be making Hungary something of a scapegoat and a warning for other countries thinking of going down that route. But nevertheless, it is defying the fundamental and core values of the European Union. Frank, do you want to respond to that one? Yeah, I mean, I think that the European Union struggles with values. It's had a legitimacy crisis for a very, very long time. And it's far from evident as to what what the core values of of the European Union are. It it changes them quite a lot of the time. One day it's diversity. Next day it's the rule of law. You know, the, the day after it's upholding civic society. But when you actually look at the the core values of the EU when it was founded, it was based on the recognition of the diversity of nations. It recognized that nations, although they're member of the same club, nevertheless have a different way of, of, of making sense of the world. They have different ways of moving forward. It recognized that sovereignty wasn't entirely to be annihilated. And that, you know, there are different national cultures which express European values in different forms. And it seems to me that as Europeans, you know, we should recognize that one of the, the beautiful things about U- European society and culture is that orientation towards pluralism. We recognize that not everybody has got to have the same political culture, that not everybody has got to have the same set of values towards family life, towards religion, or or towards a variety of different things. As long as we sign up to some very basic principles, and it seems to me that Hungary is quite in there with the rest of the nations in terms of accepting and embracing some of the more basic values of European societies. And it seems to me that the values discussion is, a, is, is really a kind of displacement activity because the real issue, the reason why Hungary is being punished at the moment it's not because of its particular values being thwarted, because all you've you got to do is look at a number of other countries where there is a complete negation of European values. I think the real reason for that is because Merkel and, and Macron 
as some of the European leaders are really worried about the fragility of the European Union. It's understands that there are major legitimacy crises, and it needs to pull the troops together. And Hungary has just become this, it's, it's this kind of uh, bad boy that they can all have a go at, uh, at, at a time when fragility and, and fragmentation is, is very much in the air throughout the European Union. I think you mentioned before you accused Anne Applebaum of using conspiratorial language. I think you've just done that yourself by accusing there being a conspiracy against Hungary. It's nothing to do with, as you mentioned earlier, quarantining Hungary. It's much more to do with the fact that it is not abiding by the rules it has signed up for. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a bit interesting that for years and years, the EPP is quite happy to have Hungary amongst its ranks. It's the same politics that Hungary had you know, yesterday or the year before as now. And then all of a sudden you have the word, it's not conspiracy, the word goes out to the Austrians and to a number of other governments that this is time to kind of, you know, sort of just decide who is the friend and who is the enemy. It's a kind of Schmittian political approach that Merkel has been promoting. And there's nothing, there's nothing conspiratorial about it. I mean, everybody knows. You don't need to have a PhD in political science to understand that the Germans in particular hold all the reins at the moment and are quite, quite effective in trying to influence many different governments to kind of follow line. And, and I think that's what we've seen at this particular stage of time. Because you know, Europe, the European Union is facing a very major problem and they have to do something. They have to some way create order and stability at a time when they're fearing the coming elections, the European elections next year. Paul, just finally, I mean, how big a role do you think the EU has played in creating the rise of various far-right parties right across Europe? Well, I don't, I don't believe the EU itself is responsible. I mean, it, it happens that many of the countries in the EU have seen this. And I dare say the EU provides a pretty convenient framework for a conspiratorial ideology like what the far right demonstrates, because you can point to unelected people in Brussels controlling things, which to a lot of people make sense. But I mean, countries that aren't in the EU have seen the rise of similar radical right politicians, uh, radical right populists, such as Donald Trump in the United States. The United States doesn't have freedom of movement, and yet immigration is it dominated the presidential election in 2016. Other countries that aren't in the European Union, such as Switzerland, they have radical right parties. So I don't think you can blame it solely on the European Union. I think that what the European Union provides the far right is a foreign scapegoat for people to blame their problems on whether that's the encouragement of freedom of movement of European workers, whether that is through collective asylum policies, whatever it is, it's ultimately the, the complaints the far right have against the EU often bear very little reality as to what the EU actually does. Thank you, Paul and Frank. Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm Life and Arts Editor for Spectator USA, and I'm inviting you to join me on our weekly Life and Arts podcast. Each week we'll be running the gamut of American cultural life, talking to writers, actors, musicians, philosophers, and even the odd politician. So join me. Search for Spectator USA on the iTunes Store. One possible explanation for why the Conservative Party is tacking right could be because it's simply run out of ideas. Paul Collier, professor at Oxford University, writes in this week's magazine that both the Labour and Conservative parties can learn a thing or two from the ideals of One Nation Toryism, which values the cohesion of community and the welfare of the marginalised. Paul argues that both major parties have forgotten the importance of community. He joins me now, together with Chris Skidmore, Conservative MP and Vice Chairman of the party. 
So, Paul, can you start by telling us what exactly you mean by One Nation Conservatism? Well, One Nation means a patchwork of building mutual regard and obligations to each other, recognising that a society is a complicated structure of obligations to each other that's built up over a very long time. That starts within local communities and, and became completely national. It's helped by narratives of shared identity, by big common endeavours. You know, I grew up shortly after the end of the, the Second World War, and that was a massive common endeavour. I grew up in Sheffield. I was next door all, on all sides to, to Scots. It never occurred to us, for example, that we were anything other than one nation. And that's started to come apart over, really, I think, since the 1980s. And why do you think the Tories now need to return to a one-nation agenda? I think that since the 1980s, a lot of divergences have happened because we've neglected a sense of being together. And two in particular, there's a big new spatial divergence between the provinces and London. I'm a provincial guy who now lives in Metroland, but I can sense both the anger of the, my provincial relatives and the sort of disdain and contempt coming out of the metropolitans. And that's awful. Until the 1980s, for 100 years, the spatial divide had been narrowing. And so something's gone wrong. And then the other divide is the new class divide. Those are the two big divides that have made ordinary people really anxious. And that's why my book, The Future of Capitalism, its subtitle is Facing the New Anxieties. We need to face them and address them properly rather than deny them. Chris, do you agree that the Tories' problems stem from their decision to move away from a one-nation agenda? I think we're stuck at the moment in this process of Brexit dominating discussions in London, you know, on the media. But actually, you know, paradoxically, it's, it's the other things that make a difference. And part of the policy review that I'm heading that's been set up as part of the Conservative Policy Commission, I'm very keen that we spend most of our time and our priorities focusing on those areas that did vote leave, that are left behind. Maybe not necessarily, you know, we've talked about the provincial areas, you know, there are northern cities, but there are also towns around the country that feel that cities are receiving the investment versus the outlying towns. And so that sort of geographic dislocation is not just between London, which you could see as almost a sort of Monaco of the, of the country, but, but also I think even within places like where I'm from, Bristol, you know, you've got the city centre receiving investment, then you've got towns like Kingswood on the outside, which look inwards and say, well, what about us? Paul, you talk in your piece about state and nation. I mean, are, are you arguing that you'd like to see more state power, or is that incorrect? I think we've got to embrace both state and nation. The Conservative Party's traditionally been comfortable with nation, but not with state. And then there's more recently in the Conservative Party been a flirtation with the sort of libertarian agenda of neither state nor nation, which I believe is completely crazy. The first party that genuinely embraces both will just dominate British politics because it is obvious to me that we've got to have a sense of shared belonging. Otherwise, we can't cooperate. People won't be willing to comply with government. Our society will start to wither on the vine. But equally, we need an active state 
to heal these new divergences, it will take an active state to actually bring skilled firms into the clusters of provincial towns and provincial cities. The market will just drive everything to London. We cannot leave these things to the market. The market has delivered de-skilling and broken cities. And so we have to embrace state as well as nation. Chris, do you agree that we can't leave these things to the market? Well, I think, you know, there is a balance. On the one hand, you can't accept a consensus will continue around the role of a state, the role of taxation, the role then of individual endeavour within that framework. So, you know, making the case against the threat of socialism that having low taxation will deliver a greater tax shield of investment. So, for instance, you have a classic example around the role of the state with corporation tax, reducing to corporation tax has brought in an extra £19 billion a year to be able you know, to spend. And yet that very factor is under threat of saying, well, actually, you know, you've got corporations now who somehow need to be taxed more in order to be able to pay for things. I think that we've got to be able to look at the complexities, what I'd call an agile state, that actually, on the one hand, yes, there is room for state intervention, as has been mentioned, to encourage and to facilitate investment in areas. But on the other hand, you know, issues around planning, for instance, and looking at to what extent we have deregulation on planning to be able to allow for increased building, to be allow for pilot zones, for instance, to be able to take over areas that have been failing. You know, you look back in sort of the Canary Wharfs of, of the 1980s and what Heseltine was able to achieve by actually taking the foot off state intervention when it comes to sort of other areas of state activity. And I think for me, David Willits is argument back in the late 90s around civic conservatism was actually knowing when state intervention was necessary, but also when to allow little platoons to flourish. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Michael Heseltine was brilliant. He got the point that you couldn't rely on the market. If we'd relied on the market, it would not have happened. If we relied upon the conventional cost-benefit analysis of economists, it wouldn't have happened. Heseltine had to overrule those people with a clear sense of purpose and vision. And he did it with tremendous achievement. That's the conservatism we need. And, and you can call it agile. It, it, it's certainly not the paternalist state of socialism, but it is active. And we have to have the confidence to embrace that. You know, it's, it, that's why I describe the future of capitalism as promoting the hard center. It's a tough combination of an active state and a, a shared sense of belonging to place. To the nation. But I think also the geographical location of the state and who are the gatekeepers is, is also a question that I think we need to ask ourselves. We've seen, obviously, and you've mentioned in your article about Andy Street and some of the metro mayors that have been set up, but I remember working for George Osborne and the Treasury as his parliamentary secretary, and I sort of saw then the point at which the tide had reached this high tide mark, and, and we couldn't push any further at the time to be able to say, how can we, for instance, create a metro area for the, the Solent? Because that simply Hampshire and the Solent wouldn't agree around a single figurehead of accountability and it's the same in my area in Somerset North Somerset wouldn't sign up to it Osborne was interested for instance in, in a, to what extent we could create a Thames Valley region that would cross over the historic boundary between you know, the sort of Kent and, and, and Essex to be able to really generate and, and soup up the economy and it's to what extent you know I used to be a cabinet office minister and I'd go into the, the cabinet office and behind the sort of Georgian facade would be the sort of original Tudor buildings and that single street has been the location of, of power for the past 500 years, how can we ensure that the state is fragmented so that those keys are, are sent across the country so that we have many more gatekeepers and then people can visibly see lines of accountability into their communities in a way that that dichotomy between the sort of metropolitan and the provincial, how can we sort of break that barrier down? Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Chris. 
And that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We always like to hear from you. And if you'd like to pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces discussed, as well as an interview with Tory Vice Chairman James Cleverley and Laura Freeman on the history of unicorns. Plus, there's a special issue of Spectator Life. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Thank <music> you.